Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And welcome to the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing what we've been thinking about recently, and it's a big topic with the race season coming up, but road bikes versus TT bikes, and what are the pros and cons of each? What For the sake of this, this discussion, we kind of want to split it up into two general uh, questions. Uh, question number one is, if you're only going to have one bike, uh, if you're only going to buy one bike, which bike should it be? And question number two is... If you happen to have two bikes, um, which bike should you choose to race during a given uh, a given triathlon? And it's interesting because everyone knows the the proper number of bikes to have is n plus one, or <laughs> n is the current number of bikes you have. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, uh, hopefully, all of you will have uh, will get the takeaway that you need to have at least two bikes in your stable, and then you know, a mountain bike and a cross bike and a fat bike and a commuter bike, probably a fixie or a single speed. Yeah. That covers Easy. most of the use cases, but uh, feel free to add more to that as well. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so jumping in, let's kind of define what the difference between a road bike and a, and a time trial or a triathlon bike. And I apologize because I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. So time trial or TT or triathlon bike, there's definitely a difference between the two. And we can talk about that if we if we really want to. It mostly has to do with uh, uh, frame shapes and saddle positions and UCI rules, really. Um, but for the sake of this conversation, a time trial bike and a triathlon bike are the same thing. Fair enough? That works for me. Okay. So... Um, the the biggest difference in uh, between the two between a road bike and a TT bike is the geometry of the frame set, um, and that you know without that in of itself isn't super remarkable. Um, specifically, the the big difference is that the um, the seat tube angle, so angle from horizontal, is steeper on a um, on a TT bike, and what that means is it's it's a little bit more of a vertical, and the effect that that has is that puts the rider's hips more over the bottom bracket, which of course is the part of the bike where your, your crank spindle uh, connects to the frame. So the, that effect itself isn't, isn't anything to write home about, but the, the consequence of that is that it puts the rider in a much more uh, aerodynamic position. Or put another way, it allows the rider to achieve a much more aerodynamic position uh, while still maintaining um, a useful uh, hip angle for delivering power. So that's probably the number one distinction. Uh, weight is another one. Uh, generally speaking, triathlon bikes will be uh, a little bit heavier than road bikes. Now, it's this coach's opinion that uh, that weight is now kind of a, uh, a red herring and it's not really a, a very consequential, uh, you know, bike parameter. Andrew, what do you think? There is a small impact that you get from weight. Uh, so if you're riding a flat course, so in triathlons, the vast majority of courses have very little climbing. And that's simply because for marketing, really, uh, because people who want to race Ironmans, usually they're just interested in finishing. They don't want to do the most challenging possible 180 kilometers that they can. Good point. So uh, Ironman events and even the challenge events are typically quite flat. So the only real impact weight has when you're not climbing is rolling resistance. And 
the amount of rolling resistance you're adding is just a fraction of a watt, just from those few extra pounds that are few extra kilograms that you're carrying along with you. So really the aerodynamics, that's the big impact on everything. So the weight, I'm not that concerned about. Uh, and the example I always use is like people, even on the road bikes, they'll carry three or four bottles sometimes. And those bottles are way more than the difference in the weight between the two bikes. So if you're really concerned about weight, don't carry water. Well, that, that would be good advice from a weight weedy <laughs> perspective, maybe not so good advice from a training or racing. And uh, yes, if yeah. you listen to our episode on, uh, on managing the heat, you definitely want to have access to those fluids. <laughs> Uh, on the subject of aerodynamics, there's the aerodynamics of the frame itself. And this is something I'll let Andrew talk about because he knows this a lot better than I do. Uh, but generally speaking, triathlon bike frames um, will do everything they can, especially the top end frames, to optimize the aerodynamics of that frame. So they'll hide cables, they'll extend... Um, um, they'll extend the ratio of width to length to get a more optimized aerofoil shape, all in the uh, all in the aims of uh, reducing the drag from the frame itself. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of different impacts there. Um, to be honest, and we'll probably discuss this more, but uh, the rider contributes most of the drag anyway. So it's not to say that you can't go fast on an entry level TT bike, but um, the yeah, the, the bikes themselves, they they hide the cables. They're, that makes a small impact on drag. The larger aspect ratio airfoil shape, so that just means a longer, flatter airfoil. So when you see the, the thick uh, frame members on a lot of the bikes, uh, that's done for just drag reduction. Uh, and it actually helps out as well in uh, crosswinds because it uh, essentially gives you more, um, more of a sailboat effect where you're getting thrust from the crosswinds. Uh, one interesting comparison, actually, is because of the UCI regulations, the uh, Cervelo P5, there was two different versions of it. There was a UCI legal one, which has the forks with, I think, a three to one aspect ratio, which means it's three times as long as it is wide. Um, and that was the UCI legal version. And then there was a triathlon version, which was the, the P5-6, which had a six to one aspect ratio. So the forks themselves were noticeably different. Um, so that's... And that's actually kind of breaking down the differences between doing a pure TT and triathlon, which tends to be a lot more open with rules. For sure. Um, and then just on that subject, there are you, more and more in the last, I would say, five years, you are seeing bikes that cannot be uh, UCI legal. So that means you can use them in any triathlon, but you cannot use them in a UCI time trial. So the ones that come to mind is the, you know, the P5-6 that Andrew talked about, certainly all the new P5-X bikes, um, as well mm -hmm. as, um, you know, the um, the Shiv, the even the original uh, Shiv, they actually had two models. It was the Shiv Tri that was illegal, and then the Shiv TT, which was UCI legal. Um, the Andean from Diamondback, the um, the Ventum bike um, certainly is not is not UCI legal. So in in recent years, they've uh, maybe the bike manufacturers have realized that the triathlon market is bigger than the time trial market, um, and so they've uh, they've you know put a few more dollars into you know into creating shapes and frames that are very specific for you know triathletes only. And it's uh, it is quite interesting to look at um, the marketing and the the profit in terms of a business is certainly one area, but it also the the more open regulations actually foster a lot more innovation. So you see these creative solutions coming out of the uh, just some of the other manufacturers because they say, "Hey, how can I make this faster? Or how can I make this more marketable?" Is the other thing, <laughs> and we'll touch on that a little bit later. But uh, that's obviously a big part of it as well. Uh, but it, it does 
create some interesting designs that aren't really UCI legal. Um, the Ventum's a great example because they have this integrated water bottle that's uh, 1.4 liters. So you've got, without adding any aerodynamic drag, you've got it mounted right to the frame. Um, so it's very cool to see these kind of innovations happening. Absolutely. And uh, and that's the bike that you ride, right, Andrew? That's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big fan of it. And um, without getting too out into the weeds, like I think it's um, definitely a very fast bike, which has been proven by Cody. Uh, not so much myself, but uh, <laughs> um, it's it, it feels like it's a, it's a nice bike to ride. It's nice and stiff, and uh, and despite the big kind of chunky looking frame, it's actually quite light. Oh, awesome. uh, and most of the weight of a bike actually comes from the components anyway, so it's not like your uh, the frame is a major contributor. You might add a few grams here and there. Um, but really, as we discussed, the weight is not that critical anyway. So especially in a, a triathlon. Agreed. Agreed. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned the integrated water storage on the Ventum and that's, that's kind of the last point that I'll make between the, the road and the tri, uh, and this is tri specific more so than TT, uh, is that the more, um, the more recent, especially super bikes, which are, you know, are the most integrated of, of bikes in the triathlon world are now starting to feature, you know, is storage for both hydration and nutrition and even garbage and, and tools um, as not not as an afterthought to the design, but as a forethought. So peop- so the engineers and designers that are developing these frames are thinking about, well, you know, the, if you're doing an Ironman and it takes, you know, four and a half to seven hours to complete that bike leg, that's a lot of stuff that you have to carry with you in order to to do it safely and effectively. So where are you going to put that stuff? So it doesn't really matter if you're, look, if you've got the most aerodynamic bike in the world, but you got nowhere to put your, you know, your 18 gels, which is probably not an unrealistic <laughs> number of gels to carry. Um, so you've got them all stuffed in your jersey pocket in a giant backpack of a jersey. Um, then then there goes, there go whatever gains you had from your super bike frame because you now you got like a hump on your back. So putting stuff... Uh, store being able to store your uh, your eats and your drinks and your tools in a smart way um, is a is a real advantage of more modern, I would say, triathlon bikes. And from an engineer standpoint, there's nothing more frustrating than seeing someone spend a ton of money and uh, even the engineers spending a ton of time developing and uh, fine tuning the bike to get the the lowest drag possible, and then someone straps on a big water bottle. Um, just on the down tube or yep. something, you know, just a standard water bottle and it just destroys the aerodynamics. So you're paying thousands of dollars for the improved aerodynamics and then essentially just putting a parachute on it. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, there's a lot of that happening. If you, if you pay, you know, if you're kind of keen and pay attention to this stuff in races. Uh, yeah. I see a lot of, uh, you know, aerodynamic crimes in, uh, in transition at races. <laughs> crimes. I've never thought of it that way, but I like it. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's uh, let's make the case for the road bike first. Then we'll do, make a case for the time trial or triathlon bike, um, and then we'll sort of render our our verdicts. So um, the case for a road bike is really it's is its versatility, right? So this is you know the use case for a triathlon bike is very specific. The use case for a road bike is a little bit more broad. Um, so you can take a road bike on a group ride. You can do drafting triathlon races, and of course you can you can commute on it, which are all things that you cannot do with a TT bike. I mean, you can commute on a TT bike, but that's uh, oh man, you you, you really have <laughs> to watch it. Oh man, yeah, for sure. Um, 
road bikes handle and brake generally better than uh, triathlon bikes. So uh, handling is kind of a funny topic, but the the reason that they're that road bikes handle better, there's a couple. So part of the geometry, and this is more in the uh, the fork offset. Um, they're designed to be a little bit more nimble than triathlon bikes uh, because, of course, triathlon bikes are meant to go fast in a straight line and road bikes are, are designed to be able to, you know, allow the the rider to make fine adjustments to the steering and also take quick action when the group does something that you don't expect it to do or to take a corner um, quickly. So handling is clearly better on a um, on a road bike. As far as braking goes, um, again, braking and uh, the need to brake is is much higher on in a road ride, in a group ride, where, again, you have to react to the actions of others. And as Andrew mentioned, most triathlon races are actually fairly non-technical, which we'll talk about in a bit. So the, the road bike will have, generally speaking, be equipped with better brakes, um, especially when you're talking about the aerodynamically optimized integrated brakes in modern uh, triathlon bikes, they tend to be, perform, tend to, there are some very good exceptions, but they tend to perform not as well as their, as the traditional caliper road brakes on, uh, on road bikes. And one interesting, uh, one interesting thing though, is that there's more of a transition towards disc brakes now, which essentially eliminates the difference. Yep. Disc braking definitely, you know, levels the playing field a little bit. Uh, disc brakes, of course, are becoming more the norm in on road bikes and they're starting to enter the triathlon uh, time trial world as well. Uh, for a long time, they were seen as heavy and unaerodynamic, but, uh, you know, as with any engineering challenge, the, the folks who are smart and who build frames have started to put fairings around them, especially in uh, triathlon non-UCI bikes, um, where such things are a little bit more tolerated to hide uh, to hide the both the rotors and the calipers from the wind so the the aerodynamics of disc uh, equipped triathlon bikes are improving tremendously mm-hmm. the uh, the other case for a road bike is yes you can race a, a triathlon on one a hundred percent most uh, most you know more most folks who are just entering that the world of triathlon um, do race on a road bike. So it's entirely possible, especially if you are prepared to put some extensions on it. And these are, um, these, these would be the clamp clamp on extensions that would go onto the bar of the road bike and turn it into a bit of a Franken bike, but certainly into uh, a somewhat more aerodynamic and more importantly, even I would say a more comfortable position to hold for long duration, um, triathlons. Yeah, and comfort's something that um, is quite an interesting topic as well. But I've noticed that a lot of people typically prefer the more upright position of road bikes, but I always find that there's a lot of pressure on my wrists when I'm riding that. I don't know if I'm just too far forward or if there's a problem with my fit, but I actually find TT bikes to be a lot more comfortable, um, which doesn't seem to be the general consensus, but that's just my opinion. They're, they're not the most common problem, but if you have wrist discomfort, there's it's it's a little bit more it's a little bit more tricky to fix this on uh, on a road bike. When, of course, wrist discomfort is a non-issue on a on a tri bike because your uh, your hands aren't supporting any load in the aero position. It's all through your through your elbows. But that's an that's an excellent point. Um, the other the other thing about a road bike, and this is there's a there's definitely some variability here. Uh, but generally, most people who who have both bikes will be able to push slightly higher wattages on a road bike, um, on the order of three to five percent in my experience. 
So this brings up a couple of a couple of important understandings. Uh, one is that if you're going to race a tri bike, you got to be riding it and training on it because um, training is actually the best way to overcome that difference, to attenuate that uh, that difference in power generation. Um, and the reason for uh, for this effect, for why road bike uh, folks riding a road bike can usually push a few more watts is typically because they have a greater hip angle. So what that, you know, kind of to define that a little bit is when your uh, foot is at the top of the pedal stroke, that means your knee is the closest it's going to get to your torso. The angle that your thigh bone, um, upper leg bone makes with your torso, that's the smallest angle it's going to be when your foot is all the way up. So when that angle gets really small, um, especially those of of us with, uh, with uh, you know, the bodies of not professional triathletes um, with a little bit of a, a dad gut that I'm certainly growing, um, the, we become a little bit more sensitive to that, to that hip angle. Now I can't ride as low as I used to. So um, when, that, when that hip angle does get, does get really small, it, become, it makes it a little bit more difficult to breathe, puts more pressure on the diaphragm, um, but also the ability to generate power from that closed hip is limited. Now, again, it can be overcome through more training, but it is something that um, that folks need to be aware of. Now, mind you, and we'll talk about this, uh, this three to five percent effect can be uh, is, is insignificant next to the aerodynamic gains. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, another interesting thing too, that's kind of bike fit related um, is the crank length where there's now a trend that I've noticed with people going to shorter and shorter cranks when they're riding a time trial bike. And that's simply because your knees aren't coming up as high. So that extra space it gives you just essentially opens up your lungs and, and opens up your hip angle a little bit. For sure. Um, and we can, we can probably, we will be doing an episode on, uh, on biomechanics and that's something we should sneak in there because it's a fascinating conversation. And I think there's a clear winner. I'm a big fan of short cranks. Uh, I am, uh, you know, 5'11 and I've got longer than average legs and I ride 165 millimeter cranks. So the shortest that are generally available without going, you know, durace or something special. All right. Uh, so the, uh, I guess the next point that we, we wanted to look at was, uh, aerodynamics. Um, so when you're, when you're going to the, the TT bike, you'd mentioned the five to 8% or, or sorry, three to 5%, uh, increase in power for road bike, but with aerodynamics, it just, it makes such a huge difference. Um, so even though you're putting out lower power, you're going so much faster. And a lot of people will notice like one kilometer an hour, two kilometer an hour difference in speed, even at the same power. Um, so it's, uh, it's just a fascinating area to look at. So as an example, we put together, um, basically a theoretical cyclist that's, uh, loosely based on myself, which is a trend that you'll probably notice as we're doing examples. <laughs> uh, so we took a rider that's, um, okay. Maybe the weight was a little optimistic. I said 70 kilograms, uh, and then added a, that's your race weight, Andrew. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I just haven't hit my race weight yet or ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so 77 or sorry, 70 kilograms. And then we'll look at, um, including a time trial bike, which is around 10 kilograms. And then we'll compare that to a seven kilogram road bike. And for the analysis, what we did is picked a couple CDA values, which are, um, which range from extremely good for a TT bike to kind of an average good value. And then looking at, uh, a couple values for a road bike as well, and just trying to figure out, okay, what's the difference that we have over uh, 180 kilometers. So if you're doing an Ironman distance race or a very long stage race, um, what, uh, what differences you can really expect out of this? 
So the power number we picked was a normalized power of 210 watts. Um, so my analysis was all based on having a flat windless course, which is really easy mathematically, but not always that realistic. Uh, so the, the numbers I came up with were a baseline of four hours and 36 minutes to complete the 180 kilometers. So this is with, speedy. This is very quick. Um, so 210 watts with a 0.21 CDA. So this is um, this is like Cody Beals on a really bad power day. Because uh, he puts out <laughs> a lot more wattage than that. Um, so he's uh, he's in that ballpark for uh, aerodynamics anyway. Uh, going to the the slower or sorry the higher drag, so 0.24 CDA, which is still good but not great. Uh, it would cost you around 11 minutes. So that's a ton of time. If you think of taking 11 minutes off your swim or 11 minutes off your run, like that's that's a tough time to overcome. Uh, and it costs you an Agreed. average of 16 watts, give or take. So it's actually quite a big wattage difference. So that puts it more into perspective in my eyes. Like if you if you ask someone, go increase your FTP by 16 watts, they're going to start swearing at you, I think. So it's uh, it's it's a tough one to overcome. For um, sure. And so, Andrew, I've got a question. So 16 watts would be to hit the same time with a higher CDA. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, okay. Yeah. So basically, if you had a 0.24 CDA, you would need to put out 226 watts to, to hit that 436 time. So. Yeah. And then as, as, as anyone knows, or as anyone who's really done a deep dive into kind of pacing for, for long course, those, uh, those incremental extra Watts, they really add up. That's when you're starting to really, you know, burn your glycogen resources as you're getting closer to threshold um, and they, it can come and bite you in the, bite you in the ass on the run. Yes. And I have experienced that. <laughs> I think we all have. Yep. It's yeah. uh, it's a rite of passage. Well, at least I'm not alone in that. Uh, the next case that I looked at was going to the, the road bike. So they 0.27 CDA. And this one is basically the same delta from the 0.24. So it, it would now be 22 minutes slower than the 436. So you're getting pretty close to a five-hour time. So if you look at the results going from like a 436 Ironman bike split to a five-hour, you're kind of going from the top 5% down to kind of not middle of the pack, but you're you're definitely... Um, more in the bell curve as opposed to on the, the tails, the leading edge. And the wattage difference is starting to get really big now. So 32 watts difference, 33 watts difference. Uh, so that's a huge number to overcome. So if I That is substantial. And one thing I'd like to I'd like to point out is that I think this position, the 0.27 on uh, on a road bike, would be a pretty extreme position to hold on a road bike. So if this would be in the drops and super low. So if you've ever seen, you know, road cyclists on, uh, you know, doing a, like a long breakaway, not a sprint, but a breakaway. So it would be that kind of a position, um, almost like track pursuit kind of kind of numbers. So that. There's the, you know, the theoretical five hours to do an Ironman in that position that assumes that you're never coming out of it. Um, and that's, I would say that that is unattainable for most people. And whereas, you know, holding even a very, very low position on a time trial or triathlon bike is much more attainable because primarily because you're using less muscle, muscular um, support and more skeletal support when you're in that triathlon position. So um, even though you could theoretically do, uh, as, as Andrew points out, a five-hour flat Ironman on a road bike um, at 210 watts normalized, it would be 
that would be a tough position to hold. Uh, your, tri- your triceps and your shoulders would be not your friends at the end of that race. I'd recommend calling a chiropractor as you're coming through T2 um, just yep, to, to get the process started because <laughs> you're going to need it. <laughs> Absolutely. So a more realistic position might be a point three, And actually, you went a little bit further even, but I'll let you discuss that in a minute. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I said point three was kind of a, a more realistic position for a lot, for a smaller uh, cyclist on a, a road bike. Smaller cyclist. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So that adds around 32 minutes. Um, so we're getting to like very, very big deltas in this case. Um, and that's essentially 50 watts difference. So if you think of going from 210 watts for the, the five hours or five hours and change uh, to 260 watts normalized, you're going from a good age grouper to like pro level power at that point. Um, so that difference, uh, that's way more than the three to 5% decrease in power you might see from going from a road bike to a TT bike. So huge, huge difference. Right. And just to make it clear again, so the numbers that Andrew is, is, um, uh, putting forward, uh, the first, the first Delta would be the time Delta is if you had, if you held that same 210 Watts, and then the, the added wattage would be if you wanted to hit that the same bike split as in that uh, super TT position. Exactly. So you did the same kind of comparison, except you went uh, you went with a more established tool, I would say, than my spreadsheet that I'm working on. Uh, but you went to best bike split, which is a really cool analysis tool that actually you can use it for optimizing pacing as well. Yeah, I love this program. I am as a as kind of well as a coach and as a as a big bike nerd. A best bike split is is super cool. Um, what they what they basically do it's a it's a mathematical model that takes into account uh, aerodynamics, weight, rolling resistance, um, drivetrain resistance. But most importantly, what it takes is it actually you can actually plot yourself on a real course. So they have a huge database of courses, or you can export you can import your own uh, GPX or similar course file. So you can pretty much model any kind of race you can imagine. Um, you can also get historical weather, which is pretty cool. So you can, you know, rather than saying, okay, I'm going to ride at standard temperature and pressure and no wind, uh, which is probably what Andrew did. Um, you can actually say, well, I know that, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in Kona, I know it's going to be stupid hot and stupid windy. And these are the prevailing winds. Um, and best bike split actually has those, um, uh, those, those, that historical weather data or the links to a, a service that, that provides it. So there's the best bike split plug for us. They're not a sponsor, but we, I just really like using them. Um, so I use the exact same conditions that Andrew used. So 70 kilo rider, 10 K 10 kilo TT bike, seven kilo road bike, 210 watt normalized power. I also made sure that, um, the rolling resistance and uh, mechanical resistance were all all the same for all the cases. If anyone's interested, I used uh, uh, a good uh, clincher with latex tubes, uh, a road helmet, uh, wide wheels uh, at 60 millimeter depth. And the reason that actually does make a little bit of a difference, now I'm getting off topic, but is because of that uh, of that non-zero yaw condition that Andrew was talking about earlier, where you get where you get the wind that's not a tailwind or a headwind exactly, but coming at you from some non-zero angle. Um, and at that point, wheels that are deeper actually do make a difference. So that's why I just I, I, I chose those because they're realistic, and I wanted to keep um, the test conditions. You know, like a good scientist, we keep we have one one tested variable, and all the other controlled variables are controlled in this case. So that's my experimental setup. 
Um, and the course I used because it's uh, it's one that uh, a few of the folks that I work with are going to be racing, and it's also one that is a is super popular. It's um, the full Ironman in Tremblant, which is coming up in August, and it's an excellent race. So same uh, same bikes. We had the TT Superbike at um, uh, 0.21 CDA, uh, a very good TT bike at 0.24. Uh, super road position at 0.27, a good road position at 0.3, and the average road position at 0.33. So the difference between the last two, I would say, is um, 0.3 would be you're still in your drops, and 0.33, you're probably on your hoods. Um, and Andrew mentioned something that's super important, and we'll do another podcast episode about, but rider size matters. Um, the rider contributes, you know, 80 plus percent of the aerodynamic drag on the bike and um the bigger you are especially the bigger your legs are hint um the uh, the less aerodynamic you become so the higher that cda number gets that was very subtle very subtle yeah we have uh, we have another episode idea about this we have many episode ideas <laughs> <laughs> so my numbers were um fairly similar to andrew's uh in the same ballpark anyway just um obviously a little bit higher uh primarily because um, Tremblant is hilly, right? There's something like 1,800 meters of elevation, if I remember correctly, for the full. So versus Andrew's a flat, windless uh, case scenario, there's definitely a lot more energy required to complete this uh, this course. So obviously, the time it takes to complete it at the same power is going to be higher. So an interesting observation from the course was the second lap had much higher elevation than the first lap. At least that's how it felt when I did the race. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a common finding. That's a common finding. <laughs> um, so here are my numbers. Uh, the the base condition with the super bike and the super you know the Cody Beals position essentially these are pretty much his numbers. Uh, four hours fifty one minutes. So an, an amazing time for that course. Uh, certainly, I would say top five percent, maybe even top three. Um, of, of the field at uh, if you exclude the pros at Tremblant. Um, the, the next step up, so a very good TT position, 0.24. Uh, that, that gets us a delta of 10 minutes. So now we're at five hours and one minute. So we're a little bit north of five hours, still an excellent time for that course, uh, but realistic for, for a good age grouper, absolutely. And 0.24 is a realistic CDA for somebody who's had uh, an aerodynamically optimized fit. So something like, you know, with a good bike fitter and with a service like uh, Stax Virtual Wind Tunnel with so you to play around with some um, some setup uh, set of variables. 0.24 for somebody who weighs 70 kilos is uh, is generally achievable, I think. What do you think, Andrew? Absolutely. Yeah. I think most riders can get into that position unless there's um, major issues with back or flexibility. And those, the flexibility at least is something that you can work on. The pre-existing injury is a little harder to deal with, but the, the actual flexibility, you, it's, it's the same as training or it is part of training, um, just improving your body to adapt to those conditions. For sure. What about monster quads? Not, not much you can do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a bit tougher to modify. Yeah. Uh, so you can blame genetics for that one. Yep. Um, so uh, hopping on the road bike in the in the extreme position, uh, we get uh, a delta of eighteen minutes from the base case, or eight minutes on top of the the very good uh, or the good TT position uh, for a time of five minute five hours nine minutes. Um, again, I really don't think that's a that's a position you that the normal person can hold. Maybe somebody who is quite small um, might be 0.27 on a road bike, but they would have to be quite little. Um, the average road on hoods, uh, or sorry, excuse me, on drops, 0.3 CDA gets us up to five hours, 18 minutes, which is now 
you know, getting to the, close to half an hour longer than uh, the base position or the base case. And the, I think the realistic road bike position of CD, that has a CDA of 0.33 gets us to 526. So now we're more than 35 minutes slower than the, than the super TT position. So clearly there is a substantial difference as Andrew's, um, as Andrew found in his flat uh, windless case, there's a substantial difference between even uh, a, a, a good but achievable TT position and the best road position. Yeah, so it's a very interesting analysis to look at, and I think it, it really makes the case for TT bike. Even uh, an entry-level TT bike is going to be quite a bit better than a road bike, but the other part of it is having a good bike fit, because I've seen a number of people ride uh, TT bikes, and they basically ride them like road bikes, where they're very upright position, and these tend to be the athletes who are maybe a little less serious about the event and more, more interested in just finishing, but um, you see a whole variety of bike positions out there, and even on slow twitch, they, they do a, a neat breakdown after Kona, usually, or after any major race, where they analyze the different positions. For sure, um, and then uh, this is something that I've I've said a few times, but I really want to you know uh, put a nail into this one. In, in order to hold that aerodynamic position, it is much much easier with the correct with the caveat of a correct bike fit. Of course, it is much much easier to do on a triathlon bike than on a road bike. The other less or probably more tangible thing is uh, the the marketing aspect. Uh, the reality mm. is that um, these companies are trying to sell bikes and their businesses, so they they want to have something flashy. It's just like when you go buy a car. You want a car that looks good. You don't want something that's kind of a a cube and looks you know basically like an old design. Um, so a big part of it is this wind tunnel testing and they they try to come up with these crazy designs that look better look faster but everything's converging onto a basically a, a best value I, I wouldn't say a single solution i was almost going to use that wording but they're very different designs but it's different uh, different ways of achieving that same minimum drag and uh the results are basically they've converged onto a very small difference so going from one superbike manufacturer to another uh really the aerodynamics are so close that um, you can't go wrong the the big difference will be how well that bike fits you and then the hydration and nutrition options and how you can store all your 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 eats and drinks yeah no i totally agree with that and i think we're starting to see a little bit more um, a little bit more innovation around comfort um, because you know this is probably a trivial point to make but if you're not if you if you're riding a tri bike um, and you're riding it sitting up like not an arrow but on the on the hoods on the brakes your 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 aerodynamic value is worse than a road bike um, so if you're not comfortable in that aero position, you, you, it's that that bike isn't doing you any favors, and that comes down to obviously number one is fit, and obviously having the right size, um, but also practice in that position and being able to to hold it. So you know, I see, I look through race photos all the time, and I see so many people sitting up, especially in long course and <laughs> in, in Ironman. So many people sitting up on the, on their TT bikes. Never mind what their base position in arrow is, but just sitting up, and that's um, again that. that I would, I would also call that a crime against aerodynamics. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure we're all guilty of that crime at some point. Totally. Uh, but an interesting side note on that is um, there's no real good way of comparing this, but the pros with the coverage that Iron Man now has on Facebook, they've got a camera sitting next to them the whole time. So they're going to have that extra motivation to be looking more aerodynamic. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if a lot of them actually spend more time in aero position than they did previously. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's also to their, you know, they're they're strongly motivated by wanting to go fast. Right? There's there's a very big difference in either speed or power. Um, in order, if you're if you're, there's a big cost in speed or power if you're sitting up versus versus going into aero. And I don't mean, look, if you need to sit up to drink in a in a six hour race and uh, you need to drink for 10, 15 seconds and then get right back into aero, that's terrific. There's there's nothing to you know, there's no no real a tangible cost to that. Plus, you're giving your body a little bit of a break, a little quick stretch. Um, but if you're talking about the overall time, if you you know kind of drew a distribution of time in uh, in aero versus time sitting up, that time in aero better be you know well north of 95 98 percent um unless you're on a super hilly course yeah and it just it comes down to training in that position so if you're not comfortable you're not going to be able to race in that position i to- yeah i i absolutely agree with you uh agree with you on that point so um we can probably you know based on all of this uh all the stuff that we've thrown at you guys um we can probably make some distinctive uh, decisions here, and you, you, I, I, I don't think any of you are going to be surprised which way Andrew and I skew on this <laughs> on this decision. Um, but I think the, the the more nuanced question was the first one I asked: is if you're going to buy one bike, um, which bike are you going to buy? So I would say, if you're a triathlete, of course, if you're a roadie, then yeah, this is there's no point in having this conversation. <laughs> but uh, if you're a triathlete, you should buy a triathlon bike or a TT bike. Unless, so there are four cases where I would say you can strongly consider a road bike. Um, if you also race or ride with uh, with road cyclists, uh, because uh, obviously you cannot race on a on a triathlon or a TT bike in a road race, you wouldn't want to, but you also wouldn't be allowed to. Um, and then most road groups, I would say the vast majority of them will not allow you to ride a time trial bike in a, in a group. Um, most of that has to do with safety, just because you can't reach your brakes fast enough if you're shifting. Um, and that makes a ton of sense. And again, I you wouldn't want to to do this uh, if you want to race draft legal. So draft legal is uh, obviously becoming a bigger um, a bigger part of the landscape in short course triathlon. Um, you know, uh, Toronto has a few draft legal, or Ontario has a few draft legal races now uh, for sprints. So again, uh, you know, a TT bike you just wouldn't be allowed to participate. So it becomes a moot point. Um, if you are going to commute by bike, again, uh, you'd be pretty hardcore to commute on a, on a time trial bike. So it's probably not <laughs> ideal. Um, and then the final one, this one's a little bit, um, this one's, you know, specific to the individual, but if you live in a major metropolitan area like Toronto or any other big city, uh, and you do, you, you like to train outside, um, you don't want to do indoor training and you want to do any kind of legit training outdoors in the city, uh, on a tri bike, that gets really difficult because again, the 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 shifting and the braking, unless you've got DI two shifters, but even then, um, if you want to be training, you should be training in the tri position, like we talked about. Um, so training in the city outdoors on a tri bike is hard. It's just it's also no fun. So um, that's another case where I would say maybe you might want to consider a road bike. Yeah, so I've got a couple other or slightly different opinions, maybe, um, but it's at least a point for discussion. But I think I would actually recommend if someone's getting their first bike to go with a road bike with clip-on aero bars. So the the clip-on aero bars make up ninety percent of the difference, I'd say, between the road and the triathlon bike, and the, the geometry is the remaining difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a lot of the aerodynamic benefits, but then you can take them off, and then you got the road bike. Um, the other advantage too, is if you're just getting into the sport, you can pick up a used road bike a lot cheaper than you can pick up a used tri bike. So Excellent point. it would be, it would be a very good way to start off. And then that way you don't have a ton of money invested. So if you decide, Hey, I love this sport. 
Um, and then you can go and buy uh, an entry level TT bike like the the Cervelo P2 um, is is probably my recommendation for entry level bikes. Uh, a number of people have won events like pro level uh, athletes have won events on the P2, so it's a fantastic bike for the money. Um, so definitely, I would recommend that. But um, the other alternative is if you do a triathlon and you say, "Wow, this is no fun running after I've been biking." Uh, then you can you can still use use it as a bike, and you don't have this TT bike that's uncomfortable to use for road or commuting purposes. For sure, um, I totally agree with you. I mean, there there's some nuances in the fit that we can dive into, but uh, I generally I think Andrew, you're you're spot on. And on the financial side of things, um, I'm a moderator for a, a Facebook uh, buy and sell group for bikes, and so I kind of see what what goes through that group. And there's certainly a lot more um, road bikes available. So this means that you can certainly score a good bargain for a road bike but you can also there's also a good bargain for a good market excuse me for selling road bikes a bigger market uh, than for triathlon bikes so if you if you did buy a road bike and then you decided oh i'm not so sure um, and you wanted to divest yourself of that investment um, you have you'll have an easier time selling your road bike than a, than a, than a tt bike for sure all right. Uh, so were there any other use cases that you see that road bikes would be more advantageous in uh, in a triathlon? Yeah, I think there are some. So there's really um, there's really uh, two. If you have both bikes, if you have the option of, ri- of riding either a triathlon bike or a road bike, there are really two cases um, where I would say you kind of you may want to ride a road bike versus a triathlon bike. Otherwise, ride a ro- uh, triathlon bike. So the first case is if you've not really done any training on your TT bike, and this is common if you're you know if you ride with a group, so you ride your road bike, um, and you're always training on your road bike, and you haven't done any t- you haven't spent any time on your TT bike, um, you may have some issues when you first uh, when you first make the transition. So that's kind of like maybe an obvious case scenario, but uh, one that's worth mentioning. And the other one is if the race is incredibly technical. Um, so this is when I mean technical, I mean specifically turns at high speed. Um, so turns at high speed are very, you know, generally uh, an element more of, uh, of bicycle racing than triathlon. But there are a couple of races that I can that come to mind, like I'm in France and Escape from Alcatraz, where um, there are, you know, there's a lot of downhill, uphill and downhill, uh, and there is um, there's the need to make turns at high speed. So in those cases, especially for people who aren't really strong bike handlers, um, you can make you can make a strong case to ride a road bike as opposed to a tri bike. Yeah, I think those are those are great points, and I agree one hundred percent. So I, I don't have that much else to add to that. Fair point. And w- one one thing, and this is a little bit of a myth that I would love to bust, and I hear this all the time, is that triathlon bikes don't climb as well as road bikes, and I think that's complete nonsense. So what what, what is it inherently? This is the question I always ask: is what inherently about a triathlon bike makes it, you know? climb less well than a road bike and then everyone will say wait and i say yes there's absolutely you know there's absolutely those two or three kilos that you've added to that bike which is a you know a non-trivial amount of mass but it's not nearly as much of a penalty as uh, as people assume there's nothing about the geometry or the the mechanics of a triathlon bike that make it inherently less 
you know, make it make you climb on it less well, because climbing is obvious is, is at the at the end of the day, climbing is purely a physics equation. It's, you know, you're adding potential energy because you're going up. So you're adding it, a, you know, the faster you the faster you're gaining elevation, the, the more potential energy per unit time. So the higher your power has to be. So if you can generate roughly the same power uh, on the triathlon bike, which we agree you can, especially if you're sitting up compared to a road bike and there's only a little bit of a weight penalty, there's really not very much of a difference in terms of climbing between a road bike and a tri bike. The other interesting point too, is that, uh, and a lot of people don't realize this, but it's the, the, the crossover is really around 18 kilometers an hour where a three to 5% improvement in power, uh, overtakes the aerodynamic benefit. So if you stay in your aero position to around 18 kilometers an hour, which feels like a snail's pace, you're still going to be better off than on a road bike. Um, so it's, uh, really the trade-off happens at a very high grade, a lot higher than people expect. hundred percent. And if you think about, you know, sure, you might have some climbs in your, in your race, but unless you're racing a, a point to point, point to point net uphill race, which in triathlon almost never exists. There are a few, but they're not that uphill, you have to look at the average grade, right? So if your average grade is, you know, puts you at a speed of, Andrew used 18 kilometers. I've, I think in the past I've used, uh, I've told folks around 25, which is even, you know, even more um, conservative from this use case. Uh, imagine how steep that hill, the average grade would have to be in a point to point race for you to only go 18 kilometers an hour. <laughs> 180 kilometers would take a long time. Yeah, it would take a very long time. Like you would be, you'd be, you'd be essentially climbing always, and that's those races just don't exist. So, you know, it's kind of a silly, um, silly argument to take. Excellent. Well, I think we've covered quite a bit here. Um, so why don't we why don't we leave it here, and then uh, we can discuss some of the other topics maybe next time. Sounds great. Um, Guys, thank you very much for listening. And uh, as always, if you have any questions, please do send us a note. And uh, I'm Michael of X3 Training. And I'm Andrew from Stack and Four Eyes. And you've been listening to the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Until next week. <laughs>